You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas that are shaping our patterns of consumption for the better. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Christy Kaler, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. You are the um, founder and CEO of Four Days. Now, Four Days is a circular fashion brand. Is, is that fair to say? Or how would you define it? Yes, that's fair to say. We're the first closed loop, totally circular fashion brand. Um, we like to say we've built a brand to really prove a model that this closed loop model can survive and thrive and actually produce a tremendous innovation for the industry. Tell me when you kind of first came across the term circular or the concept of circularity. I have been kind of in the space of sustainability, whether it's ethical sustainability, innovation, uh, environmental sustainability for quite a long time. I started my career at The Gap and kind of moved up through the ranks there in a pretty typical fashion and then became very passionate about impact and so took over Product Red for them. And to start thinking about the, the power of commerce for good, uh, that was a really early project in this space. So it, it kind of introduced me to the, the community very early on. And I had a prior startup uh, before Four Days called Mayette that also worked in the more kind of ethical sustainability space, but got involved with Cradle to Cradle. I sat on their fashion positive leadership team and Cradle to Cradle is built to support the movement towards a circular economy. And to me, as I started studying the waste issues in fashion, the tremendous amount of textile waste we produce annually, that 85% of it ends up in landfill. I was like, why are we doing that? Like, what is going on here? This is mind boggling to me. And, and circularity was really fascinating to me because it was regenerative. It was saying, okay, if we plan for the end to the beginning, we can actually take all of that and turn those textiles or those materials or those waste materials into something new that's of equal or greater value. And as an engineer at heart, I actually have an engineering educational background. It just felt efficient and it felt smart. So I, I started diving in more and more from that point forward. Can you, you used a bunch of different words here just to do a little bit of vocab for people. Can you define circularity and how is that different from zero waste and regenerative? I feel like they're all kind of in the same area, but slightly different. Yeah, they're all in the same area. I mean, a circular economy is really as the word kind of indicates. If you think about a product origin going out into the world and it's utilized and then it comes back into its its into the ecosystem as some type of input. Uh, people call it either feedstock, or it can be energy, or it can be food for the soil. Um, but really, throughout its life cycle, so as it's created and then it goes out and it interacts with the world and comes back, the value isn't lost. That's really what circularity is. So it's very closely related to zero waste. I think zero waste. Often people think about not producing trash, or think about recycling their cardboard which is fine, but a lot of times recycling actually devalues the inputs. You know, we can't actually recycle and retain maximum value because it's degraded or there's a loss factor or it can't be used after it's recycled again. And circularity is really about this ongoing use and life cycle over and over and over again with minimal kind of leakage, <laughs> so to speak. You really want everything to stay in circulation in its highest value. Was Gap, uh, what was, when you were there, what was going on with circularity at Gap? <laughs> circularity didn't exist in fashion when I was at Gap. <laughs> yeah, because that term, yeah. even just in terms of popularity, has really, I feel like, come about, what, in the last six or seven years or something? Yes, it's been very recent. I would say that's the timeline for it. And it, it, it I think worlds like architecture and a few other kind of hard goods industries embraced it earlier. And I think in the physical tangible goods, um, it just hasn't, it's been more recent, but at gap, I was there at an interesting time. And I think it was definitely pivotal in the sense where sustainability was typically housed under corporate social responsibility on occasion. It was, it intersected with kind of the product teams, but more rarely. And we didn't really think about things systemically from a waste and sustainability perspective because it just wasn't a topic. And most people in fashion in general thought, mm, nobody cares. And that CSR group oftentimes rolled up into kind of a marketing initiative, really more so than a product development initiative. Yeah, it did. I mean, it always had kind of that angle, which was, but even then marketing sustainability wasn't considered sexy or cool. 
you know, it was considered kind of dorky and like, nobody cares, like we're doing it because it's the right thing to do. But I think the general sentiment was that the customer wasn't there and didn't, didn't care. They just wanted to mindlessly consume. And I think that's the most exciting shift we've seen in the last few years is that's changing pretty rapidly. Internally, I would say teams were motivated to solve problems. Like my product teams were, I remember denim, the whole denim team doing a clean water project. And this was very early. And of course I thought it was super cool, but it was really novel and new and communicating that to the customer. They're like, what do you mean? Clean clean water. (laughs) Like we don't talk about that in fashion. Um, With red, we were like, your dollars can impact lives in Africa. And they were like, what do you mean? Like these dollars matter. <laughs> like I'm just buying stuff. So I think that that consumer relationship to consumption and, and spend has transformed pretty significantly in that same course of time. And I think that it it seems obvious. I think there's some there's already some data that shows that every subsequent generation cares more about sustainability in their purchases. But I wonder in your day to day, now that you're running four days. I'm guessing that just the level of education is so much higher now among many consumers and they're asking harder and harder questions, like questions that are more and more difficult for brands to even answer. And I wonder if you're encountering some of those and what are the ones that kind of surprise you from customers? I think that's a really good point. I mean, we always approach our relationship with our customer um, with tremendous transparency, authenticity, and respect. I think they are increasingly educated and that's actually really cool. Uh, We built four days from such a pure vision that we've taken great effort and lengths to try to address as many points as we can. And when we can't, we're kind of transparent about it. We'll have that conversation and say, well, this isn't perfect because, or we're doing it this way, which is the best we have access to right now. And I think that creates a really nice conversation. But I think to your point, brands that have operated in a more traditional way or trying to kind of back solve for supply chain issues or have really focused on one element of sustainability, but not the full kind of conversation are in all likelihood being met with questions they find difficult to answer. Yeah, I would say for us, we're small and we were founded on these principles. It's in a lot of ways easier. (laughs) I really like what you're saying about the kind of work in progress nature of this. It's something that I think a lot of brands kind of fear that. Um, And I've noticed it. I've run this like volunteer project called slashpackaging.org, where we're trying to help brands standardize around this like URL of like for you, it'd be fourdays.com slash packaging, where you talk about what you're doing from a packaging sustainability standpoint. And what I'm really trying to help brands do is be open about the fact that there's improvements that they want to make. And and there's also systemic infrastructure improvements that we need to be moving towards. And it's okay that brands have to work within those constraints. But in the meantime, here are the things that we're doing. And I think just being able to share that with openness shows that you're thinking about it. But a lot of brands are afraid to do that because they worry that it's going to be misconstrued or something. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's, it's perfection is unattainable in this landscape and in what we're trying to accomplish because it's such a work in progress. And I think you're right. If you can talk about why you made your decision or what the options were, or where the trade-offs were like often, this is a super small one, but for me, it's, we try and minimize plastic use, but at a certain point in packaging, you need to protect your goods from water. And so you're like, well, what do you do about that? It's almost unavoidable that you use some type of plastic based product. And then you get into the world of, well, do we use compostable? Do we use biodegradable? Well, people don't really compost. Well, recycled materials are, you you have to go down and and really dig into those trade-offs and make a decision and then communicate why you made your decision and be open to having the conversation and saying, well, we chose this because this is what we believe. And this is what we're trying to optimize for and prioritize. And, and then when people are like, well, no, this is not you know, great or what we'd actually prefer to see is this and listen (laughs) and say, okay, we'll explore that. That's really interesting. But I think that's right. I think providing the customer a dialogue around these topics is, is really important. And too often it's typical though, fashion specifically is a very kind of insular closed off, 
you know, non-collaborative industry very traditionally. And people is always protecting themselves and protecting their IP and protecting their designs and not, you know, not sharing. And I think that that's having to change pretty significantly. <laughs> so with four days, you're, you're mostly focused on basics. What can you describe a little bit about just circularity in this particular context, the, the actual like practicalities of how it works for you? Yeah, for us, we knew we wanted to be, take responsibility for everything we put out into the world because we found that, again, the textile waste statistics are pretty staggering. The 70 pounds per person of textiles that go into landfill annu- annually in the U.S., um, to me, was one of those mind-boggling kind of realizations. So I'm like, whoa, whoa. And then you look at your own life and you realize, well, I have the pileup that everybody else does. And the most sustainable thing to do would be to stop shopping, but that's not going to happen. So, I mean, we can be more mindful about our choices, but really to stop commerce is unrealistic and and maybe not the best thing anyway. So then I was like, well, this pileup is real. Why? And you see the rise of kind of rental and resale, which are really cool and serve their own purpose. But a lot of the products in our lives we want to use for a long time and wear them out, or they're something more intimate, or there's something that just isn't that durable. So what do we do about those? And that's why we focused on basics because I felt like those were like, you know, the things that are unrentable and unshareable and unresellable pit stained t-shirts and single socks and stretched out pajamas. <laughs> those aren't mm-hmm. going to make the big bucks on the real, real any day. So for me, I was like, okay, well, these are the things that I want to address and pile up in my own home. How do we, how do we make that a circular system rather than a linear system? And what I started with is saying, okay, we have to have good product design and and we have to design for circularity, meaning we have to know that we can take all of these products back and, and put them back into the supply chain. And that starts with material choice, supply chain partnership on the post-consumer recycling side, a deep knowledge of recycling technologies and where they are in industrialization and scalability. But that's kind of the framework and the skeleton. And then really at the center is how do we relate to the customer this way? How do we say, okay, no longer are you going to buy something and own it for forever, but really you're going to give it back. What does that mean? And why would you? And how would you? And what is the mechanism for that? And what does the customer engagement element look like? And what do we have to build to make that easy and and really value add versus challenging? So it was thinking about this systemically as a whole kind of interconnected system, a full loop because it didn't exist. So let's talk about that loop a little bit. You talked about the product design and then materials. Are you able to use um, recycled materials as a, as a starting point? We do. We use recycled materials um, in various places throughout the collection. We really focus, at least in today's world, on, on natural fibers. So we're mostly cotton. Sometimes we infuse cellulosic fiber, but very rarely. Sometimes there's like a very small percentage of recycled elastin, but we guarantee that that can still go through a mechanical recycling process. And so that's kind of the materials decision, but we are working with very, very, very closely with one of our supply chain partners to introduce more and more recycled material. And so the goal being that that content, that percentage of content will grow over time. Sometimes it's 20%, sometimes it's 50%. It's almost impossible, at least I've never seen 100% recycled cotton. We had an episode with a company called Everybody. I don't know if you know them. They're based in LA. Yeah, I do. They figured out how to make a a t-shirt that was 100% recycled cotton, but it was very hard. and It's very, yeah. And just basically, I mean, there's a bunch of problems with it, but, you know, that material is not widely available the machines to process it if you're if you're trying to actually kind of produce the rolls of fabric it causes a bunch of issues and and so there there's a lot of um resistance to that it seems like in the industry i don't know if we're if we're going to get to the kind of scale where that's happening or if there there's a movement in that direction it also involves like perhaps a lot of cleaning and what is the the footprint of that too Interestingly enough, at least with the the people that we work with on the mechanical recycling side, and I've seen 100% recycled cotton, just not that I felt was the right quality for t-shirts. Like it can, it can, I haven't seen there. It's doable, maybe it's, but maybe not. Yeah, comfortable. maybe it's wonderful. I I can't speak to it. I haven't seen their 100% recycled. I've seen their blends, but um, it can be a bit scratchy and it can be a bit thick and a bit hard, and you can design into it for sure. And I always say like this is where the creative process becomes incredibly important because when you have constraints around your material choices, you have to get very creative 
on how you leverage them. So as opposed to the traditional creative process, which is like my vision, (laughs) this is my vision. And you have a bunch of people going out to make it a reality. You have far more constraints, but that being said, whether or not we can get there, um, I do think it's a, it's a work in progress. And I think that people are working very hard. I think the chemical recycling side of this conversation is increasingly interesting. The footprint of chemical recycling is said to be less energy and water intensive. The mechanical recycling process is actually a waterless process and requires far more processing on the back end. So other than transportation, which we weigh into life cycle analysis is in getting products back, which I think will improve the kind of consolidation points. And, you know, when stores are open again, it becomes more interesting, but, um, the, the recycling process itself is at least in the natural textile world, a lower footprint process than using raw materials. When you think about the like work in progress nature of, of where things are in the world of materials, where do you feel like we are in the industry and where do you feel like for days is? Oh gosh, I think the industry has a really long way to go. Um, I think with four days, we've been able again to design for this system in the sense that we've chosen the materials very intentionally. We've worked with strategic supply chain partners to make sure we can reabsorb those materials and we've introduced recycled materials from the get-go. I think what's challenging in the broader industry is the the breadth of the collection and what people are trying to achieve with their products. And they also have a history with their products that they need to comp. And I think it's much harder to swap like for like out using sustainable materials than it is to start from scratch. So when I think about very, very, very large organizations, they have to be quite strategic about where, where they can make those trades and how they can improve. I do think there's a not enough investment going into recycling technology. I think that's really critical. I also think there's a bottleneck in sorting and grading, which is something we're focused on building out um, better processes for that and more more efficient ways to reclaim products uh, will be absolutely essential to making this a reality. There's also an aspect, especially within fashion of how much are you trying to design for the longevity of the item, both in terms of the durability of it and in terms of the design and kind of aesthetic, trendy or timelessness of it? Where do you fit in on on those two things? Yeah, I love that topic. I was actually on a call this morning with a, like a pre-collaborative group talking about durability and product design. So it's very timely. We work in specifically with four days, we work in a product category that is typically less durable. And so we do think about that as a, as a function of design with material choice, staple length of fibers. There are some newer applications around kind of an anti-stain, anti-odor. We haven't gotten into that space yet. um, But it's definitely something we've kind of preliminarily explored. I think designing for durability is really critical, particularly with high quality goods, meaning complicated goods that are meant to be used for a long time could actually go through a process of repair. Uh, If you think about outerwear, even if you think about denim, I think it's interesting. There's just a component that if you can think through your assembly, you could think through repair and durability. For us, more specifically, what's been really cool is because the system allows you to swap out products, uh, the products that come back to us are really, really worn because there's an end-of-life incentive. So typically, when you buy a t-shirt, you know it's just going to go in the trash at the end. We say, we'll buy anything back from you. So we'll give you credit for anything. We don't care if it's ripped, stained, stretched, written on, cut. It doesn't matter. We'll take it back. And so I think there's like this insurance policy built in with our system that is actually encouraging utilization. So I think that in some ways we have a behavioral relationship to durability that needs needs to be explored because with fast fashion and quick availability of variety and actually resale being kind of a, I don't want to say a catalyst for less utilization, but it is because it's an insurance policy, but you can't use your stuff. You know, I think there's a relationship to utilization and durability that 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 relationship needs to be explored. Can you explain a little bit about the business model around swapping and also 
does that factor into the pricing of your products? Because that, that's another part of the equation when you're thinking about the design. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely built into our business model as a very intentional function. Um, and the goal being that we have this ongoing relationship with the customer, but they're actually in the driver's seat. So they can leverage this incentive anytime they'd like, you know, versus being forced to swap things out or having forced deliveries or having kind of too rapid of a relationship to this trading out. Uh, they're the customers in the driver's seat. But that incentive, that financial incentive is built into our business model but it's also a loyalty and retention tool. So it creates a much longer engagement period and hopefully, you know, a a lifetime of relationship because it's this living, breathing thing that we get to kind of present and offer to the customer. So let's say I buy a t-shirt from you. What's the expectation or how are you setting up that relationship? Am I, are you expecting that I'm going to send you that t-shirt back at the end? And how do you kind of logistically do that? Well, so as of tomorrow, (laughs) we have uh, a new functionality launching, a whole new site experience launching. And what we've built is we've built this virtual closet. So it's essentially a closet in the cloud, um, but we've turned that whole closet into currency. And so everything you buy at four days has a swap credit associated with it. It lives in your closet. You can see it at any time and you can literally use those clothes towards new clothes. So let's say you want to buy a sweatshirt. You can apply two of your old t-shirts as um, swaps and the credits associated with those t-shirts subtract out from the price of the sweatshirt. So we've factored in that it's really more of a dynamic closet relationship. As we see customers relate to four days, they tend to buy more and more products over time because this, this behavior is very enticing. So more product variety means we can go deeper into your closet, which means it becomes increasingly valuable to you as a customer. So we think about it that way. We think about it as a relationship over time, not like a one-to-one swap white t-shirt for white t-shirt. You really can can play across the whole landscape. We also have um, a take-back bag program, which is a really successful offer, um, almost surprisingly to us because it's been really like our number one selling skew <laughs> every week. But people buy a take-back bag, fill it up, send it back to us, and we, we put a $10 credit in what we call your swap bank that you can use towards products in the future. But just in cleaning out the closet, it provides this really easy way for people to kind of get into this closed loop mindset. They know that we're taking care of all those products sent back to us. Um, and it's a really early and easy kind of touch point for us as a brand to say, this is what we're about. Like, we'll take all of your crap and deal with it in, in the right way. And does that, it, it doesn't have to be from four days. It could be any brand. It can be any brand. Yep. And how does that work? What do you, what do, you do with that? Are you able to turn that into value? Like how do you actually make sure that gets processed and what business wise can you, what, what is the value of that uh, material? So the value of the material is varied depending on what we get back. We do a sorting and grading process on it to determine what could be resold, what could potentially be resold, but probably need some, some love uh, and what needs to go to recycling because we don't control the design process uh, and, and the production process, we can't optimize for fiber to fiber recycling. The, the world today of fashion, it's mostly blends, a lot of stretch, things that would just prohibit us from doing the same process we do with our products. But we're still very mindful to optimize for recyclability to make sure nothing ends up in landfill. So traditionally, we have 85% of textiles ending up in landfill. We've essentially taken that out of the waste stream. We work with post-consumer recyclers. They can either be a, a, a wide variety. Some people do lower market resale. Some people do rags. Some people do shoddy. And again, it's harder for us to do fiber to fiber recycling on that product because it's typically you know, the typical stuff that you see out in the market, <laughs> which hasn't been designed for recyclability. And so are you doing all of this yourself? Like, What is the actual logistics of it? Things are coming into a warehouse somewhere that that you're running? Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah, we do it all ourselves. Uh, Again, it's a process that really isn't typical in commerce. And so reverse logistics, sorting and grading, even processing of swaps, um, sorting that product by color, all of that needs to be done in-house. So we've built um, both outbound and inbound logistics infrastructure and have built sorting and grading capacity and kind of a process for sorting and grading. 
How much technology are you able to bring to that? Is it is it all manual or do you have... It seems like there's a lot of sorting technology going on right now, a lot of computer vision in that area. Is that <laughs> not at the level where you're operating yet? No, you know, we've looked into fibers, like a fiber sorter machine, and that would probably be part of next generation. You still need some pretty good people around that to make it work well. Right now, it's very it's a very manual process. I think the technology advancements in this space come with mixed reviews. So we're kind of watching the space closely. We don't really need it yet. We will need it probably in the next 12, 18 months. And so far, you haven't gotten into the world of repair or resale of the the products that you're um, receiving that are from four days or that you um, might be able to kind of sell again. That's not something that you're offering. Well, actually we do. We just offer it in different moments. So what we do on the products, the majority of over 80% of products that come back to us are very worn. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I was saying about utilization that I'm actually really excited by because it means people are really living in these clothes. They're wearing them, they're washing them, they're taking care of their baby in them. They're making dinner in them. Like (laughs) they're really worn, which is cool. The products that come back that are kind of more gently worn, very few, I mean, under a percentage come back, not worn at all. Um, where we could really just refresh and resell them. So the majority come back pretty worn. We do a reincarnation program on them. So we'll take them and do an ozone uh, wash, which is a waterless sanitation wash, and then an over dye and a print. And so we kind of turn them into something new. They get a second life, but with a dose of creativity. I did notice that print was a, was a part of um, your collection. And I, I feel like that's an interesting choice is that always for um these these reincarnated products or is that or resurrected products or is that also for new products no we do prints across the board i think we found that our brand messaging really hit a positive note literally (laughs) we say for better days for days um for the future and i think particularly given the last year it was um kind of an uplifting voice to lean into. And so we've found graphics people are drawn to. And so we do seasonal graphics. We use water-based prints and make sure it's recyclable, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it's definitely a part of our brand. And with those materials that you're sending to different partners, are they able to give you transparency into you know how that actually gets turned into something useful? Yeah. 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 Uh, we We monitor that uh, we only work with people who are very transparent and report back out on what's what's happened. So whether it's with the take back program and the recyclers we work there, or if it's directly with our fiber to fiber recyclers, uh, we have full visibility into the process and we've vetted people for that. So very important to know where your products go. Again, to that conversation around transparency and authenticity with the customer. What feels like it's the most in progress right now about this whole system? Oh gosh, it's always in progress. <laughs> so it feels. What's the area that that you're paying the most attention that you you want to improve the most right now? Oh, uh, well, this new site experience is a is a big one because as I I think I mentioned earlier, figuring out the customer piece and the behavioral piece and how people want to relate to this concept. It's more than just saying, "Yeah, I believe in sustainability. I really want to be more sustainable." We're actually incentivizing and and inciting a new behavior around your relationship to clothing. And so I think for us, that's been the biggest evolution over time is figuring out what, what works for the customer and how can we maintain just a really easy system for everyone so that it's scalable, so that it's applicable broadly, so that even somebody who wasn't a diehard sustainability fan would be like, yeah, I want to do that. That just makes sense. That's really the ultimate goal. And so it's, it's getting there that we're aiming for. What do you feel is the right level of transparency with your customers in terms of whether it's aggregate data about what's going on and it, with the overall kind of supply chain and, and process of what you're doing and down down to the individual pieces that you're selling? How, how much would you like to be able to share? And also, how how far should brands try to go? Does it get overwhelming at, at a certain point for for people? I do think it can be overwhelming because there, there comes a time where it goes, what does it mean? <laughs> like when people are like, is that good or is that bad? The, the granularity I think can be, 
confusing to the best of us uh, if you don't have a comp and you don't have a roadmap. I think we're transparent as we as we can be. We do company lifecycle analyses that are posted on our website. We provide information on what recycling can save at the individual item level. We actually track at the individual customer level um, what has been swapped, returned, recycled, and what the impact of that is. And then on the supply chain side, uh, we're very communicative about the materials we use, about the places we produce, about the standards we adhere to. We've been actually leaning into more communication around labor standards. Uh, We always kind of just assumed people would assume that we were very mindful of that, but I think that's an increasingly point of interest for customers, which is great. So we hear the feedback, hey, I'd like to know more. We're like, great, we'll just post tomorrow. These are our standards. (laughs) So I think it's a bit of a give and take. What is the customer interested in? What is relevant? What's overload? Uh, and what can we do just on an ongoing basis? Like what's, what's just consistency around reporting. So I think that's where those statistics come in handy. I, I've noticed that you're very active on Instagram. What have you learned about that kind of aspect of communication? And especially in that bite-sized format, are, are there things that you figured out about how to educate your customers or provide that kind of transparency in that, you know, social media world? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's connecting with other, other people doing that education as well. Uh, we do communicate around sustainability stats. We actually have a thing that we do every Sunday called Susty Sunday. That's really fun. It just started as an Instagram story and then now it's part of our newsletter and it's, I mean, the click rates are amazing. And so it's sharing sustainability news putting our take on it and really focusing on a call to action. I think that's what people are interested in. What can I do? And so that goes beyond our brand. It's not just saying why we're so great. It's like, here's what's going on in the world. Here are people we admire. This is what we would suggest you can do. And I think that's part of the broader conversation and responsibility um, in being a brand like ours. I'm sure you still have all kinds of friends and old colleagues of yours in, in kind of the big outside of the startup world, kind of at the uh, large scale companies like Gap, are you seeing that shift start to happen in those big brands as well? What are you seeing there? I think the shift is definitely happening in the larger brands. I mean, I'm I'm actually pleasantly surprised by even in the high fashion world the mindfulness around this. And not to say that the high fashion world has not been mindful, but they're typically smaller and very focused on design and materials and luxury and aesthetics. And to have those conversations in that space it's been popping up. Like we've actually had partnership conversations with people in that space. And it's really cool uh, how open people are. I think the bigger brands are definitely much more committed to a sustainable future. I think it's in some ways harder for them to chart the course because it's a very big ship to shift. I would say that internally, I've at least found from many, many years ago, employees typically are quite excited to tackle these problems. Like it feels closer to their lives. Getting the the big ship of the whole organization to shift is is typically another story. Who do you think is doing a really great job at that? On the big brand side, I mean, I I do think H&M really does as much as they're a culprit in the fashion movement. And I always say, as long as there's like a $4 bikini available, we're never going to stop the cycle. But (laughs) that being said, I do think they've they've been very vocal for a very long time in improving and investing in kind of recycling technology and materials development. So I, it's a double edged sword on that one, but I do think they're. And, but I've heard the same uh, that you know H and M does come up in in both of those ways that you described. What is yeah. it that that they're doing specifically? Is it just around their reporting and transparency, or what else do you see them doing that is pointing in the right direction? Uh, materials investment and development, kind of sponsoring and promoting, uh, I would say material innovation, uh, investment in textile, textile recycling. Uh, they have an investment arm that they've, they've made some significant kind of commitments to companies that are doing things in a more innovative way. They definitely participate in the larger conversation around circularity, at least in my experience. So I, I find the the mindfulness and the ethos is there. The business model is tricky. (laughs) So that's, I think where there's a conflict. Um, but if you could get the business model to a place where it was zero waste, then who cares how many $4 bikinis we buy? How much do you pay attention to other industries outside of fashion and, and what 
can be learned about their approach to circularity or sustainability as a whole? I love that question because I've been thinking about it a lot uh, in the last year. I actually think an interesting industry that we we look to is the electronics industry. Mm. And it's because those products and components are very high value that they've had to figure this out sooner. Um, but if you think about even your your phone and your relationship to your phone and your ability to swap out your phone, and then those are all taken back and reclaimed and disassembled or refurbished, like the companies themselves are really incentivized to reclaim, refurbish, reuse because it's an expensive product. But the way that they've been able to relate to the customer and get those products back, I think has been quite smart. And all of the components are serialized and traceable and trackable. And again, it's kind of a business case for it, which I think is always a, a good place to start. But I do look to them from a systems and infrastructure and even customer relationship perspective. Yeah, it's interesting. We had um, the founder of On Running uh, Shoe, <laughs> and he was talking about yeah. you know some some similar ideas, and they have a subscription model for this shoe. Yeah, um, coming out, and it's it's very much sort of like a phone <laughs> uh, type of thing where it's like I'm gonna use this shoe for a while. I, I, it's also interesting to think about things like versioning fashion products, like you know, you get your new iPhone or Android phone and it it, clearly each year it gets a little better. And that is happening in the fashion world. It's just not kind of conveyed in that same way. And I I wonder if there's a parallel there uh, that could be brought together closer. It's super interesting. We actually launched the subscription and found that it, it wasn't the right relationship and it wasn't the right model for these products that we make mostly, and I didn't even think about it through that lens of like upgradability, but yes, a fresh t-shirt is great, but it's still a t-shirt and people didn't really want to swap, swap it out that frequently. They wanted to use it until it was done and then swap it out. And so that level of individuality in their relationship was very important to our customer base, at least, which I think is, is interesting when you start to think about like a monthly cadence of payment or some sort of structured timeline around fashion. I think it's worked when it's a high fashion, high trend item, but I'm curious about the rest. Yeah. It's interesting because when you think about those materials, like if there's, you know, certain materials that are being used in batteries or in kind of the wiring or the chips um, that have this raw kind of value, a lot of those materials can be sort of, they're more malleable, I guess, than fibers, which do kind of break down and it makes me wonder if there <laughs> if we could ever make clothes out of like materials that are more malleable that way and obviously plastics kind of go into that direction but natural fibers don't seem to as much although we're more and more experimenting with digital forms of fabrication whether it's like digital knitting or could we someday grow certain materials in a kind of more natural way, you know, in an art, artificially growing natural materials. I mean, maybe the closest thing that we have right now would be something like viscose or something like that. Yeah. I don't know if you're, if that takes you anywhere in terms of what the, what the future looks like. I think what's difficult in, and this is kind of the contrast to my example in the electronic space is the componentry of fashion isn't as high value in its second life. Right. But I think you're pointing to as well. And So until we have efficient systems for processing and until we have efficient technology for processing or designs for disassembly or traceability in a way that's more universal, you know, there's some things to widespread industry transformation that need to be in place if we were going to do the the whole system circularly. But I think that is right. It's it. I mean, it's even interesting on the, the poly side, and this is where people I think are working on chemical recycling for polyester because currently recycled PET cannot then be recycled. So it's great that you've done one more loop around the sun, but then it's over. And so we need a solution for ongoing reclamation and recyclability. And that's why I like natural fibers because you can keep taking them back. At least you can do a mechanical process on them. You can keep processing them over and over again. The loss factor is actually quite small when you blend them with virgin materials. And there's some chemical recycling happening for to address um, natural fibers as well. It's also really interesting and you know, people are working on it. So I'm 
I'm optimistic. Well, and, and there is this idea, which I think is very alluring in the in the packaging world, you have this idea when it comes to like glass, for example, which glass is infinitely recyclable. You can, you know, melt it down, turn it into anything. You can also clean it. You can kind of do that kind of milkman model or like a beer growler type of model where you're reusing it over and over again. But when I think about high value materials in and and so the incentive there is that the company that is producing the product, the beer, the milk, whatever it is, owns that inventory and so is invested in making sure that that material stays as valuable as possible. But when you think about the world of fashion, a high value material like, say, leather, it will, you know, once you kind of sew it into something, mm-hmm. you're cutting it, you're you're doing things to it, and then it's going to degrade in some fashion. It's going to get scratched, it's going to wear, and it's going to lose that, like malleability and usefulness in in future lives and so that's a that's something that does seem still kind of really challenging to solve well and also if you couple that same observation with the fact that if things don't wear out people don't have a need to buy anything else and then nobody makes any money mm-hmm. <laughs> so like durability is an interesting kind of conflict of interest in some ways for brands and and people who really have built their business on selling us more and more and more and more stuff. Yeah. And that, that I think that the planned obsolescence concept is still alive, mm-hmm. <laughs> alive and well in many industries, um, including I think fast fashion as, as a kind of an example of that, you know, is there, is there something there that is just going to really prevent companies like H and M to really shift their business model long-term? Well, I think there will always be a need for new products because things do wear out. And I think there's a emotional relationship to personal expression and trend and relating to culture. And those things just evolve. I think it's then a question of what's the margin relationship? What's the loyalty component? How many brands does a person purchase from? And can you keep them in your ecosystem over time and therefore not you know, have so much pressure to sell units, 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 units. Is there a new relationship to be had that's based on loyalty and kind of this ongoing cycle where the margin equation then shifts, but that's a less competitive world than we live in today because the guy around the corner is ready to mark everything down. So I I think it's that relationship to kind of price and value and values that's at tension even at the individual customer level. As I said, as long as there's a $4 bikini, there's going to be somebody there to buy it because it's cute and it's a great deal. <laughs> On your website, you talk about um, your goals for 2030. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, well, at, probably at the time you wrote it, it was a decade away. What is the time horizon that you're thinking about? Is it up to 2030? Are you thinking beyond that? How, how far ahead should people be thinking in your mind? I mean, for us being such a small company without like tremendous resources to throw at this problem, you know, we don't have hundreds of millions of dollars sitting around in cash where we're like, we're going to have a 20 year roadmap to evolving and investing in recycling technology. We really have to take it as what we can do in our near site. Um, and I do think 10, 10 years is a near site, but I look at that through the lens of partnership and collaboration as well. Not that we have to invent all of this, but whether it's being a thought leader, participating in organizations that are committing to this evolution, being part of pilot programs. Like how are we a a force for transformation beyond what we could directly invest in ourselves? And then how do we partner with people because we have cracked the code on the system a bit to help their transformation more broadly. So that's how I kind of think about the 2030 timeline, and it's being very selective in in supply chain partnership and building much deeper relationships there. It's investing in in infrastructure and technology where one we can likely afford it, but two where people aren't. You know, what are the bottlenecks? What are people not doing that is instrumental to I, what I think the future looks like? But it's a lot of little decisions that that get us there as well. The past twelve months have been really challenging for for everyone and. Obviously, you know, because of COVID, I think that in this fashion industry in particular, it's been very challenging. I'm curious, now that you've had maybe a little bit more time to kind of process what's happened, are there things that you've taken away from from the past 12 months that you're kind of layering into your business now? 
I mean, I said that theme of 2020 was agility <laughs> because it was every day felt like uh, every, every month for sure felt like a new moment. And so this is more of a cultural comment about the way we operate and the way we think through problems and being kind of almost ready for anything with really open eyes and saying, what can we do? What can we do today? How can we approach this, get involved, engage our community? Like, what is it that we can do? Um, Being very action oriented, I think is something that actually was quite motivating and empowering for the entire organization during that crazy, crazy period when we were just like, what's tomorrow? We don't know. Like in hindsight, if somebody had told us in March of last year, we're going to be on lockdown for a year. Who knows what we would have decided <laughs> where we all would be right now, right now. So I think culturally, that's something that uh, we really focused on. I think from a business model perspective, I actually think if anything, it just proved to me the market's ready for for new and innovation. And it's primed in a way by the stress and pressure of this year. Uh, I think it's made people really think about their values in that that's positive because I think essentially people are good and want to do good. And so that, that can be a catalyst. Other than that, it's, it's continuing to build what we've always been building, which is a very customer centric approach to circularity and, and building technology and building infrastructure and building good products and making sure we're engaging with our audience and community in the right way. Well, I think you're kind of answering my next question already, but I think that for anyone who's very involved in in these issues, things can be a little bleak sometimes. And I wonder what are the things that make you feel optimistic uh, if you if you ever feel that way. I'm actually a natural optimist. I think uh, because I'm also a problem solver, I kind of view things as opportunity very naturally, and so. I think the reason four days resonates in its messaging. And as I I think I mentioned earlier, this idea of four better days is, is inherently optimistic. And so I tend not to reside in that doom and gloom spot. I always kind of find the light and say, okay, this is our opportunity. We're going to move into that space. Let's build on it. And yes, things can be difficult or hard or incredibly challenging and uncertain. I mean, that's just entrepreneurship. (laughs) <laughs> in a nutshell. Um, so if you can't live with that, maybe that's part of the conditioning. I don't know. So yeah, I, I, I actually feel optimistic because I also see the people who are so passionate, committed, and dedicated to progress. And I'm very fortunate to interact with incredible fellow entrepreneurs doing equally important and difficult work in other aspects of this conversation and just am inspired by them constantly. And that to me is, is why I feel confident we're, we're headed in a good direction. I feel like that is the engineer in you. Like the, <laughs> you know, I think it's, it's one of those things where the engineering mindset is like, we got ourselves in this mess. We can figure it out. Like it, there, you know, um, which I think is a, is an optimistic take. Like we can, we can solve this problem. We can solve this problem. That's right. Is there anything else from, from that kind of engineering background that you have that has, has helped you throughout your career? I mean, I, I think that's kind of central, like very, very systems thinking, very problem solving. I mean, I have strong optimization skills, which can help. And it's funny because I've, I've leaned into the creative side of our industry as well. And so I always find it interesting when people are like, well, you're a creative. And then other people are like, well, you're an engineer. And I'm like, I'm actually both. And I think yeah. that's the, the powerful piece is that often problem solving is quite creative. And then you have to do some kind of more scientific thinking about how to either test or create or, or design or build or execute or optimize or find profitability. But yeah, I think for me, it's a unique combination of the two that have really benefited me throughout. What's on the roadmap for the next 12 months that you're really excited about? Well, this new site launch is really exciting. It simplifies kind of the value of the swap for the customer and hopefully more broadly just to say, we're really committed to this, come join us. And we're then launching new product categories, um, really aiming to go deeper into your closet. I'm also in early conversations with some wonderful brands about how we can help facilitate circularity more broadly and in collaboration and whether that's through our take back bag as a partner, um, 
which is a really easy way for us to help kind of offer that service to their customers uh, through marketplace expansion, meaning who can we carry on the four days site, particularly in product categories that where we're not experts. So that's, that's really our focus for the next 12 months, that kind of expansion of product offering and collaboration with the industry um, and some new and exciting systems starting with this website. Well, if people want to check that out, four days, F-O-R days.com. Uh, anything else you want to send people to? No, that's, I mean, that's, it's a place that's to be. the heart and soul. Yeah. <laughs> you can always check us out on Instagram and it's four, three underscores days. Insert your word, uh, <laughs> depending on how you're feeling. Um, we like to say for better days, but there are times where it's different. So yeah, that's, that's where we are. You've got some good links here to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and some of the other kind of folks who've been very involved in this. There's a lot of good resources out there if you really want to go deep. Is there anything you'd recommend if if people want to like kind of get into the the science and research behind it? Yeah, I mean, Ellen MacArthur is great because they are solely focused on circularity. They have a Make Fashion Circular initiative, which I'm part of, um, that's cross industry. So what's called pre-collaborative, I mean, pre-competitive collaboration, which is super cool. Um, the Copenhagen fashion summit partners with a big consulting firm and typically does an annual report. Um, I find that very interesting. Even some brands have been doing more kind of reporting on circularity. Nike did a big thing, less scientific and more kind of general on the progress. So those I think are really a if you're diving in, a really good start. Yeah. We'll put some links to all three of those. Do you have any other like people or books or blogs or anything else you want to throw out there as like starting points if people want to go deeper? I mean, Bill McDonough is kind of the originator of this kind of circular concept. So I always think he's a good one to go to. He's actually quite quippy and funny about this stuff, but has been doing it for longer than most. That's a, that's a really good one that comes to mind. Awesome. The the Cradle to Cradle book is what mm-hmm. you're referencing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's kind of like the classic. Everyone should read that. It's a great start. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Christy. It was really wonderful to have you on. And I'm I'm really uh, curious to check in with you in a, a couple of years before 2030 and see how you're doing. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Like next year. We do a lot in a year. <laughs> thank you for being on. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review, could be just a sentence long, by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks and see you next time.